For good reason, pregnancy tests are a standard part of screening for certain clinical trials. Participants with positive results are excluded from participating to protect them and their developing babies from potential harm. For clinical trials that include women of childbearing potential, pregnancy tests are performed at intervals during the trial. Protocols contain language to specify how to follow participants who inadvertently become pregnant during a study and procedures have been established to execute those protocols. Balancing the need to have representative, diverse clinical trials with mitigating the risk of exposing a fetus to an experimental therapy requires thousands of pregnancy tests weekly in the US. Until recently, this was something I took for granted as established practice. The US Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health Organization changed that. That was Aoife Brennan, the CEO of Synlogic, a biotech company based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, reading from her first opinion essay, Subject, Not Suspect, The New Hazards of Conducting Clinical Research in the Dobbs Era. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, COO of STAT, here to discuss how medicine shortages represent an urgent public health crisis but it's a crisis that we can fix. I'm joined by Eric Edwards, president and CEO of Flow, to discuss how the company is reimagining essential medicine production in the U.S. Thanks, Angus. When Americans visit their doctor or go to a hospital, they expect that the medicines they have to rely on each and every day will be available. Unfortunately, some of our country's most vital medications have experienced shortages that have persisted for years due to a poorly designed global supply chain. Our nation's over-reliance on foreign sources for many of our essential medicines has left the United States vulnerable and resulted in overworked and understaffed health systems. To overcome this challenge, Flow is reshoring the production of essential medicines using the power of advanced manufacturing processes right here at home. For more information on this issue, visit www.flow-usa.com. That's www.phlow.com. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today, Eva. It's great to be here, Pat. Thanks for having me on. So I'm just going to set up our conversation with a little preamble, which I usually don't do, but here goes. The Supreme Court's decision this summer that there's no constitutional right to abortion, overturning access to abortion care that had been protected by Roe v. Wade since 1973, will affect the lives of many Americans. It's a huge change that's being decried by many and applauded by some. It will create agonizing choices for some, take away choices for others, and put others in danger. It will likely take months, if not years, to understand the full implications of the decision. In this episode of the podcast, we're going to look at one ripple effect that will require some hard thought about conducting clinical trials, 
a key engine for the development of safer or more effective therapies. Ifa, what were some of the thoughts that were going through your head when you heard the court's official decision in June? Well, I think, Pat, in some ways I was kind of primed um, for, for this topic. I, I grew up in Ireland. I did my medical training in Ireland before the legalization of abortion. So I think my first kind of um, wake up call was when the decision was leaked right a couple of months before. Um, it wasn't something I had anticipated in my mind. We kind of moved beyond that era, um, you know, that that kind of had been part of of kind of growing up in in um, in, a, in a conservative society. So, you know, that I think was the first time that I had this like, oh, wow, this it's, it's actually possible that something I'd taken for granted um, could could go could move away. You know, right around the same time, we, we had this case of a patient in a phase one trial who had a positive pregnancy test. So it kind of, I think, brought it to a head for me of like, wow, this this actually could have an impact um, on how we conduct clinical trials in 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 parts of the world, maybe where where, where this, um, you know, is going to have a real day to day impact and, and parts of the U.S. And, and so that was kind of what, what made me think um, in a more concrete way. Of how do we handle these things going forward? You know, how do we handle these routine pregnancy tests that we do for phase one trials, which are often conducted in healthy volunteer men and women? But then also, as we think about kind of phase, phase two and three trials, which are conducted in patients with disease, um, how do we think through you know, consent forms for, for patients and informing them that, you know, we do pregnancy tests, it's it's part of it, but that recording a, a pregnancy test result may have implications for them outside of the purely kind of healthcare arena. But I think it's just important to, to start thinking about and start a conversation around, um, you know, how we're going to manage to navigate continuing to enroll diverse clinical trials, including men and women, um, continuing to make sure that we're informing clinical trial participants in a fully holistic way of, of uh, potential risks associated with participating in trials. How do we think about um, issues around patient privacy and, and protecting information that's collected from participants as part of participating in a clinical trial? So I think there are a number of different issues um, that I've been mulling over. I, I don't have answers to all of them yet, but um, I think they're very important issues um, that we need to start thinking about as, as a clinical trials community. Well, that was why I was interested in your, in your essay. There are so many things that people have not yet thought about in terms of how the Dobbs decision is going to affect Americans and America. And you raised an interesting ramification that I don't think many people had been thinking about. So it to me it's a it's a snapshot into the things that we're going to discover down the road about what what life in the Dobbs era means. Let's take it back for a second. Can we walk listeners through the the vignette, the story that you told to open the open the essay? You wrote about a 32-year-old clinical trial participant. Yeah, so she was in a trial that's pretty standard. You know, it's something that's routinely done for all development companies, um, a crossover study, basically comparing, um, you know, two different products and, and whether they were different or similar. And this happens all of the time in clinical research. Often, you know, early phase studies are done with an early manufacturing process as you advance 
you're scaling up, you're getting prepared for late phase development and commercialization, often there's a question, well, is product A the same as product B, right? Is this product that we made early on in our development at a small scale, you know, because we weren't sure whether this was going to work or not the same as the product that now has been manufactured maybe in a different facility with a different presentation, the capsules versus, you know, a powder, or there's lots of changes that occur between the time that something is put first into a human and when it appears on, on a pharmacy shelf. And these trials are pretty routine, and this particular participant um, participated in, in the first arm, was discharged from the, it's, it was performed as an inpatient study so that we can control, um, you know, a lot of things about make sure the patient's taking the drug, make sure we can take um, frequent sampling to look at, you know, the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. And then patients discharge, the subject is discharged and comes back in for kind of the second, the second arm. And on admission for that second arm, um, you know, positive pregnancy test was was recorded for for that particular um, participant, and it it kind of you know triggers you know all kinds of questions, right? Of you know when did this happen? Was you know is there potential that the fetus was exposed to an investigational product? Um, so there is quite a well established um, you know documentation system around that positive pregnancy test for for patients participating in trials. Um, this particular as researcher obviously didn't continue in, in the second arm of the study, was discharged with an appointment to see an obstetrician. Now, we are obligated to collect follow-up information about that, that positive pregnancy test. Um, so, you know, as over the summer, as, as um, the kind of ramifications of the Dobbs decision were starting to sink in, we were getting some of that follow-up documentation. Um, and it turned out that uh, this particular participant had probably had a miscarriage or spontaneous abortion because when she went to see her obstetrician, uh, she she was no longer pregnant or her pregnancy test came negative. You know, the, the conversation was, well, you know, it's pro- she probably would never have known that she was pregnant had she not been participating in a trial and, and had this uh, pregnancy test result. Um, and she has a history of infrequent uh, you know, irregular menstruation and frequent miscarriage. So it was very much consistent with her uh, background medical history um, and would have been a, a kind of a big nothing had it not started me thinking about, well, you know, what, what happens in this scenario um, in, you know, maybe a different state. You wrote about it in the context of criminalizing women or providers or anybody who has an association. So in this in this scenario, the participant found out that she was pregnant, but you did too, and the people who were conducting the clinical trial. So in some states like Texas, which is trying, I believe, trying to enforce its abortion ban by letting bounty hunters or people kind of uh, I would use the term narc, but that's probably uh, from my my youth. Uh, <laughs> I would use the term rat. That's uh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> they're both they both get across the point um, that they're using other people to basically spy on people who may have had abortions. So, and they're also, I mean, I'm just amazed by the kind of information that might be used. Somebody called them dragnet surveillance tools like GPS data, keyword searches, text messages, phone records, 
purchasing history, medical apps, social media activity, all those things could be grist for uh, prosecution. And so that puts a clinical trial or a clinical trialist right smack in the middle of that. Yeah. So, so what happens? I mean, there's lots of things, right, that kind of coalesce here. Um, in the old days, it was paper records. It was very, very difficult to, you know, kind of get access to medical records for, for individuals. Nowadays, that's not the case. So, you know, we publish results for clinical trials. Just to give you kind of an example, you know, we have an obligation to disclose clinical trial results, which often include disposition, right? What happened to these patients? We post, we register studies on clintrials.gov. We provide the results on clintrials.gov because we're trying to increase clinical trial transparency. And in that, you know, eventually when the study is finished, we'll post these results. And in these results will be the fact that there was a participant on the study who was withdrawn because of pregnancy. You know, it's a reason for, for withdrawing the subject. I don't know the, the patient's name. I don't know their identity, but you can imagine a scenario where somebody reaches out to the company and says, hey, I've noticed there was a pregnancy in, in your study that you just posted um, on clintrods.gov. You know, we want to know where, where that site, where that patient was enrolled. Um, and you can see how that kind of trickle down w- would go, right? I, I don't know what obligations we will have in terms of having to disclose, um, you know, information. All we know is the site and a patient kind of identifier. We don't have information on the the, the patient's um, identity and name. But you can imagine a scenario where that leads to a site. Um, you know, the site is requested to release, um, you know, information about the, the particular subject. And, and you can see how it goes on from there. So you don't even need to have kind of a lot of tech savvy know-how to be able to follow the trail, I think, to uh, to an individual patient in the case of clinical trials, just because in the context of a lot of the clinical trial transparency work, right, we're, we're um, publishing and, um, you know, showing a data from from studies in aggregate, but often it's it's um, you can identify that something has happened in a study, not necessarily know who, but you can identify that something has happened. So um, I think it's a really important issue. And so you mentioned earlier uh, that you really need to follow participants all, all the way through. Even if they're out of the trial, you still need to be collecting information about them. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's the, the obligation for FDA. You want to know what happened, right, um, with, the, with that patient. And there have been lots of cases where products, you know, small molecules or other products have had um, impacts in terms of fetal development. And, and, you know, FDA, rightly so, wants to know about those cases. You know, I think thalidomide was the famous one, right, where everybody remembers and there's a lot of kind of it's, it's a very graphic display of, of what happened in the case where there was um, inadvertent detrimental effects for, for developing fetuses. It's it's pretty standard to follow these these patients through you know, the, the, the d- development and, and the ending and, and record the outcome of, of that pregnancy and report it to the FDA. Was this particular participant willing to give you all that information? Are, are people generally forthright? Yeah, you have the occasional loss to follow up, which, you know, and I don't know what implications. I think it's one of the questions in my piece, right? Is this going to mean that there's lots of loss to follow up events essentially becomes de facto the, you know, elective termination, you know, because, Mm. 
you, you try, you have to do your best, you have to demonstrate good faith effort to collect the outcome information. Occasionally, there'll be somebody who just falls off the radar, doesn't return calls. Um, you have to demonstrate good faith that you've done your diligence as sponsor in collecting that information. Often, you know, there's a protocol that um, contract research organizations have established. Maybe it's a sequence of phone calls. If those go unanswered, you send a letter. If that doesn't go, you send a registered letter so that you've been able to demonstrate that you've done your due diligence in collecting that outcome information. Um, and that's that's pretty standard. You know, I, I think that may change in terms of uh, participants willingness to provide that outcome information in a scenario where the, the trial participant um, elects to to have an abortion. But, you know, that's, I think, to be determined. Hmm. Do you think that some companies doing clinical trials are reevaluating where they're going to do those clinical trials? I haven't heard about that yet. Um you know, I think like everything, like, you know, it's 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 um, what you don't want to do is do more harm. Right. By, mm. you know, ending up in a situation where you're excluding, um, you know, important parts of the country, you're you're excluding, you know, sub patients with, you know, that have maybe different demographics that you have then a skew your racial um, mix um, that you really are doing studies that are representative Um I think that to me is kind of a a bigger step forward than than I would be willing to take right now. You're describing a balancing act um, in a sense about trying to get representative populations and still trying to operate in a way that doesn't put you and the people who are participating in trials at risk. We had um, in the early days of this podcast, we had a physician, Catherine Mezzacapa, and Ruth Faden, an ethicist at Hopkins, making the case that pregnant people need to be included more in clinical trials, not less. Um, do you think that, you know, is there a possibility that Dobbs will lead to less? I think it's it's early to say. Um, you know, I, I do think it's going to change. I don't think there are going to be changes. I do think those changes will come in various flavors. Um, how women in states that maybe have the most kind of extreme restrictions and have some of the developing, you know, kind of a track record of maybe criminalizing or, um, you know, taking action against women for, um, you know, exerting choice in terms of their healthcare decisions. It will take a while for that to play out. Right. But I can imagine, you know, just putting myself in, in that scenario. Right. Um, it would certainly cause me to think twice about participating in a clinical study where I to find myself in, in that situation in a state like that, particularly early phase studies where, you know, you there's if you have a disease, if you have cancer. Right. It's a different calculus. But early phase studies where it's a phase one or phase two study where you're really doing it to kind of advance science and you want to make sure that you're, you're getting this representative population. Um, I think that may be the first place you would see an impact um, before you would see an impact on, on the later phase studies, but it's, it's early days. I still don't fully understand how this is going to kind of pull through. Um, I think it's just something as an industry, we need to be acutely aware of and, and watching out for um, and, and hopefully, you know, leading the way on, and how we're going to deal with kind of this balancing act, as you say, Patrick. Many f companies, biotech companies, pharmaceutical companies, have really found the light when it comes to diversity. 
for all sorts of reasons. What kinds of things is your company doing to try to get the most diverse participant population it can? Yeah, so I think the the first thing is to measure, right? Um, you know, to make sure that we're looking at what's the makeup of, of our clinical studies. Um, our lead program is in a disease called phenylketonuria, which, you know, understanding what's the epidemiology of that disease, um, what's the population that's impacted, and making sure that your clinical trials will truly reflect that population that are going to be kind of the the, the patients that will be prescribed the product at the end of the day is really important. So gender is super important in this study. You know, this piece about pregnancy is really important to PKU because um, there's a concept of maternal PKU. So, you know, a mom with PKU disease can um, be pregnant with a baby who doesn't actually have PKU but on the basis of the mom's disease can have very poor pregnancy outcomes in terms of developmental delay. So it's if a woman with PKU becomes pregnant, it becomes critical to get her blood fee levels into the right range. If we don't do that, we know that there's going to be adverse consequences on her baby and her fetus, even if that baby doesn't have genetically PKU. And for you, for, for Synlogic, that means... Pregnant people need to be included in the trials if there's maternal PKU. Well, that's a good question. It's something we talk about a lot. Um, I think what's most important for us now, we're, we're in phase two. We've got some really good data. We really need to make sure that we understand the pharmacology of the product in men and women, in kids, in you know teenagers and adults. This is a disease that comes on at birth. And so that's what we're working on. Once we have completed our phase three study, we get this question all of the time for prescribers. You know, they think about our product and they say, wow, this would be really great for women who are thinking about becoming pregnant or who are pregnant and need to get their fee levels under control. And usually how that occurs is once we've completed the phase three study, we would then do a specific study looking at use of the product in, in women who, who are pregnant um, before we would go, you know, wholesale to, um, you know, expanding our label to to have the product used in, in pregnant women. You want to make sure, um, you know, it's just such an important time. I think you have to be very cautious. Um, and so we kind of do that in a stepwise manner um, and, and go to, to pregnant women. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's, a, it's a really hot topic in drug development, as you say, making sure you're, you have the right populations included in your study. Um, and I think it's, it's an important topic for us as a company as we think about developing treatments for these diseases that are very relevant across different, uh, different populations and different demographics. When you were in Ireland, were you training as a physician? Yes. Yeah. I trained as an endocrinologist. I, um, yeah. So went to med school in Ireland, did, did all my training there and uh, then moved to the U.S. for one year only 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> as, as often happens, you just get stuck in, in the, you know, the, the, uh, there's so many opportunities here, be it in academic medicine or, or in, in biotech industry. It's, it sometimes gets hard to go back, right? When, once you've settled. Well, Aoife, thank you so much for talking with me today about the implications of the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision for clinical research. I have a feeling that you and your colleagues and the rest of us will continue to learn about its various effects in the months ahead. Thanks so much, Patrick.
Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I love to hear from listeners. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well as we continue to navigate the realities of COVID and the whitewater ahead.